Ecclesiastes chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says that I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun and look the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter on the side of their oppressors. There is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive, yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that for all for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. I read earlier this month about astronomers having discovered a new planet in a faraway zone. And the planet appears in what astronomers are calling a probable life zone. And the planet's size and orbit and distance from the sun makes it possible, at least according to their calculations, that water could be there, that it could sustain life, at least as we understand life. But the planet doesn't rotate on its axis like our planet. Like the planet Mercury, Mercury has a front face to the sun at all times and that the reverse of the planet is always away from the sun. This planet doesn't rotate on its axis. One side faces the constant stare of the burning host star and the other faces a world of perpetual darkness. And so scientists are hoping that in The twilight zone. In the place where the darkness meets the light that they might find life. Now, the preacher in Ecclesiastes doesn't feel the need to explore the heavens for life, but rather to explore the earth and determine, does life have any meaning at all? And when you look at the dark side of the preacher, it's very dark. And when you look at the light side of the preacher, it's very light. For the preacher, it seems like it's all light or it's all darkness. And in this particular portion of the text, it takes a dark turn. Solomon looks at the oppression of the poor in verses one through three. And then he focuses on the obsessions of the prosperous in verses four through six. 
These are the hardships of life and the companionship that hardship requires. And Solomon suggests that we cannot know everything about life. The Lord has made all things beautiful in its time, but the Lord has placed eternity in our hearts. We found that out in chapter three, verse 11. How do we explain that things don't always look beautiful, even though remember earlier in the last chapter, in chapter three, verse 11, remember, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity inside of the heart, but sometimes things don't look beautiful. And things look very temporal. Sometimes they look dark and sometimes they look evil. In David Jeremiah's wonderful and helpful book called Searching for Heaven on the Earth, he relates the story of Simon Wiesenthal. Some of you know that name. He was a popular author and a Holocaust survivor. And in a Nazi concentration camp, Wiesenthal witnessed a commander shackle two Jews back to back. The commander pushed his revolver into the mouth of one of the Jews and pulled the trigger and the bullet went through his head and into the body of the other person. And he looked around at the corporals who were standing around and he said, I told you, I told you, you could kill two with one bullet. Weisenthal concluded, when I saw the oppression and the wickedness and the injustice of that act, I couldn't comprehend it. And I turned from God. Maybe you've had a similar experience where something so devastating, so hurtful, so wicked, so wrong caused you to doubt whether or not there was a true God, a good God, a loving God, a personal God, a specific God who was overlooking the circumstances of your life. And if the goal is to find meaning in life and purpose in life, the preacher understands that he's got to come to grips with evil and oppression. Now, clearly, there are things that provide joy. But there are also things that provide sorrow, even rage. We're told that life is beautiful. And then we see the dark side. Then we see the wicked side. Then we see the evil side of life. So how can we see things by faith when we see so many things With the very eyes that God has placed in our head and we wake up and we look around and we see all that's happening on the planet Earth. Cruel things, barbaric things, bloodthirsty things, savage and ferocious things. How can we hold on by faith and how can we trust that there's a God? And remember what we've already talked about. How do you hold on? How do you trust him? How do you believe that he has a plan? Warren Wearsby points out that the preacher or the king, look what it says in verse one, has witnessed three tragedies. One, 
oppression and exploitation in the halls of justice two pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people three unconcern on the part of those who should have been concerned and they brought no comfort and so devastated is the preacher by what he sees that he decides that he it's better to be dead than to be alive and oppressed in fact One is better off if they've never been born at all than to have to live and see the evil works of sinful human beings. And so it says in verse one, then I returned and I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Remember, he's seeing under the sun is all of the activities that take place from a human perspective, quite apart from God and quite apart from the revelation of God. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter on the side of their oppressors. There is power, but they have no comforter. Now, think about this. Mourning and weeping are no less real than laughing and singing. Now, I know that you'd much rather laugh. And you'd much rather sing. By the way, the people of Israel were not stoic in suffering. These were people who were willing to shed tears and grief. These are people who are not reluctant to show their emotion. So Solomon pictures life at the top of the rung and the preacher doesn't identify the oppressed, but simply that they are oppressed. He doesn't say who's who and what's what the the preacher grieves for the oppressed, but he doesn't seem to offer a solution. He says, I saw them. I saw that there were oppressed, but he doesn't say, oh, by the way, and this is the solution to the problem that you're looking at. Imagine that you're looking at the Simon Weisenthal's of the world as he sees the bullet go in and out of one person's head and into another person's body, and they both drop dead and you're trying to come up with some sort of reasonable explanation to process what you've just seen. The preacher grieves for the oppressed. He's the king. Now, remember what we've already learned in chapter one. Does the preacher have tremendous resources? Who has more slaves than him? Who has more wives than him? Who has more concubines than him? Who has more gold than him? I want you to think this through for just a moment. Why doesn't the king do something about the oppression? Why doesn't he do something about the injustice? Here's a man who has access to everything and all things. If anyone has the ability to in a position of power, in a position of authority, and a position of wealth to reverse the circumstances that he sees, why doesn't he do something? Now, I want you to understand something. Does Solomon, even with all of his wealth, and does Solomon, with even all of his wisdom, does he have the ability to purge the system of every corrupt politician and evil bureaucrat and power-hungry or money-hungry multinational corporation? Let's just put it in modern parlance. Is Bill Gates relatively wealthy? Is Warren Buffett relatively wealthy? If we combine the wealth of both of these people, could they take care of every social, political injustice that appears in our country? That's exactly right. 
even with tremendous wealth and even with tremendous resources, can Solomon guarantee the integrity of every single person who works for him? Would government reorganization create new problems and maybe even expose new layers of corruption? Can you imagine if Solomon says, look, I'm going to dig deep into what's going on here in Israel. Do you think he might uncover stuff that he never wanted to uncover? Look at the expression. On the side of their oppressors, there is power or literally from the hand of their oppressors is power. The power of their hands means that they have the means of oppression. The idea is seems to be that the strong is oppressing the weak and the rich are oppressing the poor. The oppressor seems to have some unrestricted or unrestrained access to the oppressed. The oppressor can do whatever the oppressor wants to do. And we as Christians and citizens, clearly we're called to pray for our government leaders. We're to do all that we can to see that there is justice and fairness and that laws are enacted and passed and fairly enforced. Edward Gibbon, in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, wrote that political corruption was, quote, the most infallible symptom of constitutional liberty. You may not understand that. Perhaps he was right. Here's what I think he's saying. Where there is freedom to obey, there is also freedom to disobey. Do you understand that? In a free society, people are free to disobey. You understand that, right? If you're given a freedom, you can actually act on that freedom in such a way that's dishonoring and displeasing to the government or to God. Do you understand also that because God created you with the ability to choose or choose otherwise, God has given you tremendous freedoms. You have the ability to make choices. You have the, the freedom to embrace certain things and not embrace other things. You have great, great freedoms. Maybe some of Solomon's officials decided that they were above the law. And the innocent suffered. And he's caught up in the oppression and the injustice. In verse 2, it says, Therefore I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Here's part of the point that's being made. This outrageous disparity caused the preacher to prefer death over life. That's the point that he's making. In other words, that the oppression and the subjugation was, was such that it caused him to wonder. If life was even worth living over and over again, by the way, the topic of death comes up as the preacher reflects on injustice in chapter three, verses five through 17. Remember what we've already read um, or actually verses 15 through 17. It says that which has already been and what is to be has already been and God requires an account of what has passed. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there in the place of righteousness. Iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and every time. The idea being that clearly, as I see the oppression and the injustice taking place, the only thing that gives me even a modest sense of hope is that there's a real God. God who's going to make everything right at some point. 
in New Hampshire, <laughs> the state motto is live free or die. Have you ever heard the expression or have you ever heard someone say, I just thank God that your mother's not here to see this. I thank God that your father never lived to see this day. I thank God that grandma and grandpa did not live to see this day. I think that that's part of the point that the preacher is making in verse three. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Some people curse the day that they were born. Maybe you have at some point of depression or disobedience in your life. Have you ever woken up or even before you went to bed? Have you ever just laid there on the bed and said, OK, God, I'm I'm open. Tell me why I'm here. Why did you stick me with this mother and father? Why did you stick me with these brothers and sisters? Explain to me, explain to me why I was ever born. If you think you're the only one, the oldest book in the Bible, Job, Job, after he lost his children, after he went through his crisis, he wrote in Job chapter three, verse three, may the day perish on which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. And then if you go to Job chapter three, verse 11, it says, why didn't I die at birth? Why didn't I perish when I came out of my mother's womb? And maybe some of you are shocked that that kind of stuff is in the Bible. Do you ever actually read your Bible and go, I can't believe this is in the Bible. This is in the Bible. Job faced the unthinkable and the terrible. Solomon faced the unthinkable and the terrible. Simon Weisenthal faced the unthinkable and the terrible. Some of you, because I know you and I've already heard your stories. There's been unthinkable and terrible things that happened to you when you were growing up. There were things that should never have happened to you. There were issues that you had to deal with. There were things that you had to face that you should never, ever have had to face. And maybe that there even came a point in your life where you hoped for death. You experienced a dark night of the soul. And we sometimes forget that one day and one moment doesn't determine the meaning or the reason behind our lives. You see, it presupposes that you know everything that God knows. That you can put everything in a perspective that God understands. But guess what? God does have a plan. God does have a pur purpose. And what about the person who denies God or the person who, who refuses to believe that there's a heaven, who refuses to believe that there's a Bible? What about the person who wakes up every single morning? And they have to revisit the issue of whether or not there really is a God and there really is a heaven and there is really is a hell to be avoided at all costs. 
In Psalm chapter 73, the psalmist wrote in verse two, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, the strong oppressing the weak, the wicked taking advantage of the righteous. And then the psalm grows darker until a a ray of hope breaks through in Psalm 73. Finally, you come to the middle of the psalm in verses 16 and 17. It says, and when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary. I went into the sanctuary of God and then I began to understand their end. I want you to understand what part of the meaning of that psalm is. He's in effect saying, I went to the place of worship. I went to worship God. And as I am worshiping God, I am beginning to understand and put things into perspective. In other words, in worship, you know what you do? You allow God To speak to you and to impart to you his perspective. Isn't that one of the fun things about coming to church? You come into church and you go, hey, I've been thinking about this all wrong. I see injustice and I see oppression. And yes, it's painful. And yes, it hurts me. But I'm not seeing everything. And I'm not seeing everything clearly. For a brief moment, I forgot that God is on the throne and that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And every wicked and every evil and every wrong thing is going to be made right in due time. And the righteous are going to be rewarded. And this might come as a shock to you and it might come as a surprise to you, but this is what the Bible teaches. And the unrighteous will be judged. And by the way, we don't welcome that. We understand that there are people in this world who will not believe the Bible and who will not embrace the truth about Jesus and who will not receive forgiveness of their sin. And so guess what they do? They give themselves permission to live in despair. And some in anger and some in bitterness and some in resentment. For the psalmist, comprehension came through an act of faith and worship. We look at life. We look at the social, the political, the cultural lens of personal perspective. And then we open up our Bible and then we begin to pray and the fog lifts. And we see the sunshine of hope. We see the place where God is sovereign and Jesus is Lord. And the dark shadows become rich in the light of God's presence and word. And we see things from the perspective of God's love and God's plan. And we see things from the perspective of prophecy in the Bible. Why am I telling you all of these things? Because this is not the perspective of the preacher at this point. And if you've ever been in that dark place, if you've ever been in that empty place, if you've ever been in that self-destructive place where your heart hurts so bad that you can't even imagine what it would be like to wake up and have a normal day, then you begin to understand some of the 
the trial and the emotion that wells up inside of a person's heart. On more than one occasion. I wish I could say to you that I always have the right thing to say and I always have the right word and I always give the right information. I had a situation where a couple came in and this particular person was so hurt and he was so lonely and he was so dark and he was so empty. He was constantly threatening to kill himself. And I said, one of two things is true. You really mean it and you need to get help. Or you really don't mean it and you're trying to manipulate this person into making some unpleasant decisions. But make no mistake about it. We're holding you responsible for the choices that you make. I refuse to be guilty. And it's unfortunate that you would blame your wife for these particular circumstances. The reality is you're going to have to make choices and then you're going to have to live with the consequences of those choices. And the choices that you make, you can choose life and you can choose love and you can choose freedom and you can choose forgiveness and you can choose to walk with God instead of not obey God. Or you can choose not to. The very next day, he killed himself. The very next day, he killed himself. Do you realize that there were people who would rather die than obey God? It seems, it seems unbelievable that such a, such a person could exist. No, I'm not going to honor God. No, I'm not going to obey God. No, I'm not going to believe God. No, no, no. It says in verse four, the obsessions of the prosperous. Again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now the preacher's attention turns to the endless competitions among men. People compete. For market share, people compete to be elected to office. Aren't you guys sick of these political ads by now? Let's just be honest here for a moment. Because I don't really care how you vote. But doesn't the ads make you go, I don't want to vote for either one of these candidates. I don't want to vote for any of these people. You hear an ad person come on. Hi, this is so and so. And I approve this message. My opponent is a gravy-sucking pig. Doesn't that sound awful? It's the closest that Christians get to come to cussing and, and it not really being cussing. The preacher knows that honest labor and hard work are a gift from God. He's already talked about it. Over and over again, the Bible commends the person who works hard, who is diligent, who is busy, who is skillful, who is competent in their labor. And some people work hard and claw their way to the top and others become disillusioned by the whole process and they drop out altogether. In 1993, the alternative rock group Pearl Jam 
enjoyed huge success. They had a, a their second album was entitled Verses or VS. It sold 950,000 copies in the first five days. It set a new record. The previous record was 770,000 copies by Guns N' Roses 1991 album Use Your Illusion number two. Pearl Jam's lead vocalist, Eddie Vedder, made the cover of Time magazine. And you would assume that all of this success made Eddie Vedder feel great about himself. Not true. He writes, quote, I'm being honest when I say that sometimes when I see a picture of the band or a picture of my face taking up a whole page of a magazine, I hate that guy. Do you understand what's happening? Success didn't make him feel Good. It didn't instill within him a sense of worth and meaning and value. And you see, that's one of the, 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 the contradictions, if you will, because a voice whispers in your ear. If I reach a certain measure of success, if I reach a certain measure of fame and notoriety, I'll be fine. The preacher's describing someone who is Concerned about success, but he never asks himself why he's working so hard. What do you want? What is it that you want? Why are you going to work? Remember, we've already talked about this. Remember what I said that for the unbeliever, for the person who's living their life apart from God, everything that they do is to postpone death. Why are you breathing? So I won't die. Why are you drinking that water? So I won't die. Why are you going to work so I can pay the bills? Why would you want to pay the bills so I won't die? So everything that you're doing is to postpone death. You know, there are several good reasons to make money, but there are also several bad reasons to make money. Some people want to make money not just simply to postpone death, but to indulge envy and covetousness. But if, but if you're motivated by greed, no amount of money will help. And I think that that's part of the point that's being made in the passage. And there's the rub. Some people work hard. But they don't work hard simply to honor God or to glorify God. But to outdo their neighbor. Again, one Bible commentator writes, quote, the purpose of their work was not to produce beautiful or useful products or to help people, but to stay ahead of the competition and survive in the battle for bread, unquote. I like that. Question. Did God invent selfishness and greed? No. So how do you explain the presence of selfishness and greed? We've got to go. We've got to look elsewhere to try and discover where this comes from. <laughs> At personnelToday.com, there was a headline that said professional jealousy grips the nation. It says almost nine out of ten office workers suffer from professional envy of colleagues they perceive to have more glamorous or better paid jobs. According to a survey by Office Angels, the survey of 1,500 office workers by the recruitment consultancy found that more than two-thirds of the respondents 
felt professional jealousy toward friends who made their own working life appear bland in comparison. Almost a third envy a partner or envy a spouse's job, while a fifth feel jealous of a work colleague who is further up the career ladder. Do you know what it's saying? It's saying, you know what? Not only do I hate my job, but I hate you because you have a better job. Erwin Lutzer says that envy is basically rebellion against God's plan. J.I. Packer wrote that envy is dangerous because it's fed by pride. Billy Graham points out that envy ruins reputations, splits churches, incites murder, and the precise, it's the precise opposite of love because love rejoices in the good fortune of others. No wonder he's so jaded. Again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. And in verse five, look what it says. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now, in order for you to understand that, let me help you. Okay. two proverbs are contrasted and they're set in opposition to one another. The first is a traditional saying in the Hebrew culture and in the Hebrew society. The fool folds his hands or the fool consumes himself by his own laziness. In other words, laziness is a surefire recipe for for poverty. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 10, Solomon elsewhere writes, A little sleep, a little slumber... A little folding of the hands to sleep. The New Living Translation, I think, captures the meaning when it says, quote, foolish people refuse to work and almost starve. That's the meaning. Remember, in the New Testament, Paul reiterates that. Remember, he says, if you don't work. Now, remember. For the unbeliever, why do you eat? So you won't die. If you're a believer, why do you eat? Why do you eat food? Does the believer eat food in order to postpone death? Or does the believer eat food to glorify God? It's to glorify God. This is why Paul can write with a clear conscience, whatever you do, whatever you eat or whatever you you drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And if you don't believe that you can eat to the glory of God, then you need to go to New Orleans and have some jambalaya and some gumbo, some breaded catfish, some collard greens. I used to ask my granny, Granny, why do we call this soul food? And she said, child, because it keeps your soul and your body from separating from each other. My granny had the perspective that you eat in order not to die. Isn't it great to be able to impart to a new generation that that's not true? Solomon knew that laziness was a slow and comfortable way to kill yourself. But remember, the lazy person isn't content to be lazy. How does a lazy person survive? Exactly. They survive off of the goodwill of others, don't they? Can you imagine living a life 
where you get to sleep in every single day. You don't have to be responsible for anything. You don't have to provide anything. You don't have to do anything. But then all of a sudden, the unpleasant reality begins to sink in. Wow. I have no money for the necessities of life. (laughs) Paul, again, he understood exactly what this means. W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote, we shouldn't confuse laziness with exhaustion or illness. Sometimes people find themselves in circumstances of their life where they can't work. In Norway, there's a proverb that says, the lazier a man is, the more he plans to do tomorrow. (laughs) Byrne Williams said, I like the word indolent because it makes my laziness seem classy. But there's really nothing classy about laziness. And in verse six, it says better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Now, understand the second proverb. The second proverb makes it plain that a handful, that means a little, little better, a handful. It means just a few things or it is better to have a few things and live a lifestyle of peace and quietness. That's what the passage is saying. Is it better to live with everything that anyone could possibly want, but you have to take medication at night so that you can sleep? And then you have to take more medication so that you can get up. He says, then both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Here's the idea. This is better than having a lot of things. That's what the proverb means when it talks about having both hands full, yet you are consumed with worry. And you're consumed with work. So here's what the preacher is doing. The preacher is warning the person who's reluctant to work. But the preacher is also warning the person who's absorbed by work. Is there a balance? What do you think? I think that the answer is yes. Productive in work, but careful to embrace a quiet time. This is the person who doesn't run in life's rat race, but also doesn't neglect or ignore the responsibilities of life. So the person who's preoccupied with money believes that money will bring peace. And by the way, does money bring peace? No. Oh, by the way, does it bring forgiveness? Does it bring hope? Does it bring heaven? Do you realize that everything that Jesus provides by grace is everything that you need? Paul told Timothy in Timothy chapter six, verse six, godliness with contentment. That's great gain. And so in verse seven, it says, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. In other words, the pretense of unfairness. And inequity. Sometimes people just abandon the pretense of fairness altogether. And then they just say, then why should I do anything? Why should I want anything? Why should I help with anything? And so they embrace a lifestyle of self-centered indulgence. They don't even try 
to continue the charade of religiosity. Because I want you to understand something. The person who refuses to believe Jesus will give themselves permission to please themselves. No wonder Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore also we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. What is it that you're working for? It isn't to go to heaven. You're saved by grace. You're going to go to heaven. What is it that you're working for? The Bible says that you work to please him. You work to honor him. You work in order to provide for your family and you work in order to be a provision of help and support. We all work and we all make ourselves available. We say, hey, guess what? This is what the Bible says. The Bible gives me permission to work so that I can provide for my family. And every once in a while, I can provide for someone else who needs help. And in verse eight. The preacher says there is one alone without companion. He is neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eyes satisfied with riches. But he never asks, hey, who am I toiling for? Why am I depriving myself of what is good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. You know what he's doing? He's making reference to the person who's all by themselves. Think about what the preacher has done. Here's the king. The preacher goes out into his kingdom and he sees a guy. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, Shlomo. How are you? Hey, I'm fine. Hey, tell me something. Tell me about your wife. I have no wife. Tell me about your children. I have no children. Tell me about your brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews. I have no one. Why are you working? I don't have a good answer for you. (laughs) I never thought about it. Why am I working? Why am I working so hard when there's no one to share, when there's no one to do, when there's no one to leave my money to? The preacher's describing the person to whom wealth has become his family. As a little kid, or maybe even as an adult, even though you know, I don't need a show of hands, but you see like Scrooge McDuck. Or you remember Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. And remember, he has a nephew, but he doesn't really acknowledge his nephew. He has a partner who's already died, and he lives and he works for himself And money is his mother and money is his father and money is his brother and money is his sister and money is everything to him. And you know the story. He gets visited by spirits in the night and the final spirit reveals to him that guess what? You're going to die. And you have forged a chain around yourself that's going to your greed and your selfishness are what you get to bring into eternity future. What is the preacher saying? Remember, apart from God, you can't work for the right reason. 
Apart from God, you can't work with the right heart. Apart from God, you can't work with the right spirit. This week, I read the story of Charles Tendley. He was one of America's greatest preachers ever. He was born into slavery in 1851, and after the Civil War, he moved to Philadelphia, where he began attending a church, and he received Christ as his Savior, and he was called into ministry, and he made the impressive journey from church janitor to the pastor of the church, and his congregation grew. He was, by all standards, one of America's first mega churches. Thousands of people came every Sunday to hear him him preach. Most were poor. Most were black. Tindley himself died in poverty. Despite his fame, he was buried in an unmarked grave. And he faced persecution and oppression his whole life. Racial injustice, false accusations, just plain bad mistreatment. And when he was named as a candidate for the bishop, A competing minister came and said to his face, you are an unlettered ignoramus. You know you're not educationally fit to be the bishop. An anonymous letter accused him of immorality. He was denied the position. His wife died. His son was killed in World War I. His ministry was a midnight landscape. And he turned his attention to music and his hymns. We continue to sing them to this very day. Do you realize he wrote a song called I'll Overcome Someday? We know it as We Shall Overcome, which provided the theme of the civil rights movement. He also wrote Stand By Me and Nothing Between My Soul and My Savior and Take Your Burden to the Lord and Leave It There. But one of his hymns has a very special place, at least in my heart. It's We'll Understand It Better By and By. And here's how it goes. We are often destitute of the things that life demands. Want of food and want of shelter. Thirsty hills and barren lands. We are trusting in the Lord. And according to God's word, we will understand it better by and by. Trials dark on every hand. And we cannot understand All the ways that God could lead us to that blessed promised land. But he guides us with his eye and will follow till we die. For we'll understand it better by and by. Temptations, hidden snares often take us unawares. And our hearts are made to bleed for a thoughtless word or deed. And we wonder why the test when we try to do our best. But we'll understand it better by and by. Do you understand what he's singing? I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand this dark moment and I don't understand why this would happen and I don't understand why people would be so cruel and I I don't understand why God would allow my son to die and I don't understand this. I don't understand it right now, but I'll understand it better by and by. The preacher's heart broke when he saw the oppressed and he couldn't pretend 
that it wasn't happening. The oppression and exploitation in the halls of justice, the pain and the sorrow of lives of innocent people, the unconcern of those who should have been bringing comfort. So how do we resist the trap of despair and discouragement and depression when we witness the oppression of the poor and the obsession of the prosperous? How do we hold on to the faith and how do we hold on to God's plan? You've got to have a heavenly perspective. You've got to read the whole book. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter three that we're completely forgiven by God in Christ. The believer is righteous and pleasing to God, according to Second Corinthians five twenty one. We're totally accepted by God. Colossians one nineteen. We're deeply loved by God. First John four nine. We are complete in Christ. Colossians two ten. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Romans eight nine. We are God's children. Romans eight fifteen. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen. We are are promised his presence, Matthew 28, 20. He will provide our needs, Philippians 4, 19. We're going to be in heaven, John 14, 1. We're going to reign with Jesus, 2 Timothy 2, 12. The Lord will strengthen us, Isaiah 40, 29. The Lord will give us peace, John 14, 27. The Lord will accomplish his purposes, 1 Thessalonians 5. The Lord will, give, will enable us to give generously, 2 Corinthians 9. We will be persecuted. John fifteen eighteen. Why did I put that one in the end? You were doing so well. Because guess what? All of the promises are real and all of the promises are true. All of them. But you will understand by and by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that the Bible asks the hardest of the hard questions. And it's not a not willing to dodge the ones that we're reluctant to talk about. But Lord, we thank you that there is grace and there is mercy and there is hope. And Lord, I pray for that person who's in a dark place and in an empty place. Lord, I pray for the person who doesn't understand everything that's happened to him. But I pray that they will love you and trust you. Lord, instead of despair, Lord, I pray that they would delight in you. Instead of the pain, that they would lay hold of the promise. And Lord, I pray that they would understand that you've made a promise to them. To be with them, to walk with them, to love them, to be with them, to support them and encourage them. No matter how painful the circumstance, no matter how dark the night, no matter how empty the cupboard. That Lord, we will have everything that we need. And Lord, we pray that we would come to the place where we would long to have only that which you desire for us. And that we'll come to understand it by and by. In Jesus' name. Amen.